is associated with hessianfirm.com and hatemeditations.com. Welcome to Necropolis. This is Jason, also known as Lone Goat from the Necroclassical Project Goatcraft. Um, so we have an awesome episode for you today. I know last week we had a, a, a whirlwind of an episode with uh, Mr. Boyd Rice from Non and a thousand other projects. And uh, it got pretty interesting with that episode. And he went on Instagram and slammed Shelly for being a doctrinaire Marxist. So uh, it was really interesting to see the feedback that we got on there. But overall, I thought the episode went really well. I do want to so I was drinking during the episode. I did mention something wrong about neurochemistry. And I just want to clear that up that when I mentioned dendrites, I, I equated it to nerve, like the nervous system and all that. Um, I meant to speak about neurons in the brain, clusters of neurons and how uh, dendrites are kind of the roots. Like they look like roots on uh, the neurons. And when I talked about people having uh, uh, smaller skulls and things of that nature that it could be because they have less dendrites, but it doesn't denote that they have a smaller intelligence. So I just wanted to clear that up that I misspoke during that episode last week, just to clear up the, 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 the dendrite stuff. But anyway, I want to thank my co-host Shelly for coming back. I know Boyd Rice roasted you. So how do you feel, Mr. Guy from HateMeditations.com after Boyd Rice? <laughs> uh, well, I'll take the, uh, I'll take the doctrinaire Marxist tag over liberal tag any day uh but uh yeah no all all um very interesting and uh yeah i'm feeling good oh, i'd feel better but my cat stole my seat so i'm sat, sat on the shit plastic chair but never mind it's all good i've got a beer <laughs> okay the, the you bow to the pussy then um so I, uh, our main <laughs> guest today is mr dauber beverly um he was episode two i believe of this podcast where we went over pretty much all of his projects back then and uh, decided to bring him back, just kind of talk about Necrofire, but I, I noticed that Cami is present right now, so I figured that let's just do a general Dauber episode again, and uh, we'll talk about some of his newer releases, as well as what's going on in the future for him. He's a really talented musician here in Texas. I called him the best tex or Texas drummer um, when we previously spoke, and I still hold to that sentiment that he is the best drummer in texas but he may say otherwise he's a very humble individual but uh he's pretty much essentially the real fucking deal so dauber i want to thank you for coming back oh well, i'm glad to be here thank you for having me back yes sir so your new album through necrofire came out this year on season of mist um i did listen to it quite a bit it's called uh, prophecies of eternal darkness and uh, it's a really interesting little band you have there. I didn't mean little as in denoting it's worth or anything. Just a really interesting project you have going where um, it hits a lot of different marks from black metal. There's uh, the riffs are very straightforward. You know, there's some, uh, I hate to use the word logo Genesis, but once there's a, a, a riff that really strings out and it's like very very prominent as the motif just generates in the song is focused around that i kind of consider it a logogenesis because logogenesis is meaning that unravels over time and uh and uh your music definitely has that it definitely uh has like a very strong riff you know here and there where the songs are you know structured around as well as having you know general high musicianship and the the leads are very phenomenal, which is uncommon in black metal. So what I noticed from Necrofire is that uh, it has pretty much the same guys from uh, Malignant Altar, 
other than the vocalist, uh, Christian Larson. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about this project? I know the new album's out on Season of Mist. It's, you know, you guys did some music videos for it. It's really, uh, seems to be doing really well. Uh, it, it actually is doing really well. We, uh, <coughs> I mean, none of it was for expectation. Um, uh, I think we probably talked about it before is that, uh, as somebody who really loves black metal, it doesn't mean that I fucking flip rocks over trying to find black metal or anything like that. I'm not like some diehard. Uh, I've listened to black metal my entire life, though. So, uh, And out of all that time and 25 plus years of activity, I'd never just straight up been in a black metal band. So it didn't make any sense not to be. So um, Christian and I had been friends for a long time. and He's super into heavy metal and black metal and dark wave. And it was just, hey, you know, let's write some songs. Let's have, uh, let's, let's do something enjoyable without a lot of expectation on it. But, um, you know, with, within a month or two months, uh, because I kind of push rates pretty fast, I was all like, well, let's do a demo. There's no use in wasting time and just playing for the sake of fucking playing. And so we put a demo out. And then from there, we got a couple of offers and, just kind of ran with it. Very cool. The uh, the visions of fire was that the initial demo that came out. Yeah, yeah, we tracked that at my rehearsal room, and uh, yeah, you know everything. Pretty much everything I do, I, I do myself. Or you know, as Bo called it, uh, it's a very DIY approach. Uh, unless I have the opportunity to work with somebody like really, really high up. Um, pretty much into recording myself and doing the, the work for the bands. I just, I like, you know, I like doing it a lot, so it's easy. Yes. Yeah, so and, we purposely touched upon like just you being really savvy with uh, music theory. You built your own home studio and, you know, all around just you're completely dedicated to music. It's your life. And you had a phenomenal piano teacher, which Shelly also plays piano. So today we have three piano players on the podcast. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, it's really interesting, like in Texas metal, like we're both from Texas. We we know what the scene is here, and we elaborated a lot on that with uh, the previous episode we did earlier this year. But uh, um, just all around, like I, you're like a beacon of light here uh, in a wild west. I, I really consider it a wild west here in Texas. And yeah. uh, just having, you know, just, just uh, a really, you seem really organized with uh, your goals and how you tackle, you know, the challenges to reach those goals. You seem very level-headed, very straightforward, just get to the gravy, you know, beyond the gravy, I should say, to the taters, and uh, jump into it. Um, so we do have Kimmy on the on the episode today, which I did not expect. So that's why we're doing the, uh, the, uh, the General Dauber episode. So I do want to say congratulations on your recent engagement. We're looking forward to the babies that's going to come of that. Yeah, so we baby. Girl, get out of here with that shit. Look at her. She's she even got her riled up now immediately. They're gonna come out playing little drums. Well, thank you. Thank you, by the way. She she from her vocalist babies. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Little little Mike Brownings, but more talented. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hello. So, uh, Christian Larson was in uh, the project Night Cobra, and I listened to that, and it's like really competent stuff. I mean, that if that was released like 30 years ago, that would have been some major head turning shit. So, Christian Larson seems to be, you know, he was also an internal champion, um, a really prominent vocalist guy. Um, how did you actually meet him and he come into the fold with uh, the Necrofire? Uh, Christian's a local promoter here and talent buyer. So he's like super, super, super plugged into the the music industry in the first place. It's like he's in in the music industry, just on the backside of it, the, the performance side. So <clears throat> to do shows back in the, you know, 10 years ago or something like that, uh, any shows that you would do in side of houston inside the loop you would have pretty much going through him or uh you know there were a handful of other promoters but they were always pretty shit the thing is about christian is christian was somebody who always paid bands and all, and never required like ticket uh, selling for the the younger local guys um so he's a real you know straight laced it's business stuff as usual um uh, so somebody who was really in line with what he was trying to do. Uh, so it's, you know, it's the same, same driven concept. It's like want to play music, want to write music and play shows and do all that kind of stuff. Uh, outcome variable, you know, if it succeeds amazing, if it doesn't succeed, it's, you know, it's not the purpose of doing the shit in the first place. And, uh, and so, yeah, I've, I've known him since, uh, every other band that I was in pretty much had to book shows through him. I just didn't know that he was as capable as he can be. And so, you know, and he's, you know, he's, he's a, he's a driven dude himself, but he put himself into a good environment because I, you know, uh, I, I work a lot at, at this shit. And so, uh, as either of you can probably attest, uh, given, however much socializing you want to do, it's, it's, it's very beneficial to surround yourself with people who are uh, at or above you in whatever you're pursuing, you know, the, the, the push and desire and the dude had the push and desire. So now he's more uh, prolific than ever. You know, it's like now everything that he's trying to do, he's doing to max capacity. And so it's, it's good to see. It's very nice to see. And it's a good type of bandmate to have. Certainly. Um, so I originally saw it was like he wanted to do like a black metal project and he essentially pulled in the malignant ultra guys. And um, that's how the, the project kind of formed. Like when I, when I listened to especially your newest album or the, the debut album, I should say, um, I, I draw a lot of parallels. So a lot of different styles and black metal um, with it. And I can kind of even get like a, a feeling of Nagelfar, especially with his vocals, if you're familiar with that. Um, but the riffs themselves are not as melodic, but the, the leads can be as melodic. So it's a really interesting like dynamic you have with the styles that you're encompassing into Necrofire. Um, so it was just like this great like communication between all the individuals in involved who were on the same page of knowing what they wanted to do and they just executed it or, or was it like a trial by fire? It's like, okay, this works, this doesn't work. And, you know, things of that nature. Well, I'm fortunately in the uh, business of, of production. 
So, um, in our little world, you know, I, I, I'm a producer, so I, I help sort out and put stuff together and, and, you know, and so when we're tracking or recording stuff, it's, it's easier to, um, with experience, you, you get faster at, at making these decisions, like long-term decisions. It's like you have people that write a song and the song takes six months to, to write. And, uh, Terry Manning, uh, ZZ Top's engineer and producer for all their earlier records, or I think every record they've done actually, uh, Terry Manning made the statement that if I put a drum set up and it takes me more than two hours to get that drum set ready to record, then I need to, to, to trade my, my, uh, keys in. And it was, it's pretty much about it being, it's simple to make the decisions whenever you just shit and get off the pot, you know, and that comes with time and experience. But with the Necrofire, it's like everything kind of fit together pretty well. Um, a good portion of the leads on the record, uh, I played. So, um, it's easier for me to for outside perspective with doing it to, uh, you know, I sit down and it's all like, hey, you know, here are the choices melodically that we can go and um, let's go with it. Cause uh, Christian's been working on his lead playing a lot and um, you know, it's whatever best suits the, the, the music. Right. So you make those choices to, Hey, you might not be here yet, but you will be here. And so here is a lead. I'll keep it rather not insane. Uh, and then you play this. And then, you know, he played the other half of the leads. So um, it's a growth because the band now, it's like whenever we're, we're, we're already demoing out new material, <coughs> uh, which we don't. And I find this way to work a whole lot better now is that it's, we don't sit around and write songs together. We bring complete ideas to the table and then we deconstruct and then add to, because the, you talk about like a stream of consciousness between musicians. And it's like, in most cases, uh, the musicians are playing supporting roles and they're playing primary. And, and so in, even in a band like, uh, oceans and, and, malignant it's like most of the stuff is kind of like laid out in its entirety and if you trust the other musicians uh sonically and uh, you know it's like you know that it's this is going to be good then you hear it and you're like yeah this is good like there's nothing to alter or you know it's uh it's like kind of getting the ego out of the way on a lot of this shit so a follow-up question um in regard to what you just mentioned about the stream of consciousness, you know, people just meshing together really well or gelling together really well musically. Um, do you require a musician to be really, really well trained in music theory or having a lot of experience of what works and what doesn't work? Like what's the Dauber mentality when you approach the writing process with other musicians? Well, um, I think that you can learn music, obviously. Uh, and so there are plenty of people who have massive amounts of uh, hands on, well, not hands on, but uh, the education and what it is. And those people, that doesn't make them musicians. Um, and I don't mean that in like some like derogatory way. It's just like you, you learned how to play music versus you 
you know, or you live this, or it's a, and I don't mean like in the punk rock rock aesthetic. I mean, in a, that people are born to sing and then people learn to sing. And there's a difference in the type of people that that, that, that is, or the type of performer that is. So if you have a guy who is uh, a man or woman who is a walking, talking embodiment of, uh, channeling or interpreting music out of their body and then you have a person like that who is also learned well then you have something like truly special and dangerous so um i think an amount of musical education is amazing because the vocabulary changes and then once you can uh, express yourself with more vocabulary then you can pinpoint what it is that you're trying to say or convey and so first and foremost, I would rather have somebody who is driven to the cause or somebody who is meant to play music. And then they learn more if I can show them or if they can show themselves or some uh, external education or uh, Nate Smith, super famous jazz drummer, his uh, teacher at Berkeley told him that, that look at your record collection and see what it is that you're spinning primarily or how wide or vast that range is that you're spinning. And that is, that, that's your, uh, that's your curriculum. Like that's, that's your teacher. And so I think real world hands-on all of that stuff trumps fucking uh, technical ability. If we're talking the same levels, not like some new person that's got a lot of heart or some shit. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say like uh, people that sometimes people become slaves to music theory like they become transfixed by it to the point where they let it limit their vision too much but you also on the flip side you do need to sort of understand the rules in order to know how to break them or when it's appropriate to break them so it is like a really fine balance between the two in my experience anyway you get a, a you get a band like a let's say a bigger melodic metal band amorphous and amorphous is written like 20 fucking records i'm assuming but the keyboard player i think is one of the primary writers for the band and like every fucking record they've put out is based out of b minor <laughs> and so you become like the acdc of uh, metal to where you can only change elements like the singer can only make changes or you know it's it's stylistic changes but they're writing out of the same key for the most part which happens in music, but once whenever you start getting anything that's like dense melodic uh, melodicism, it's like you you don't want them to write one hundred songs with the same calling cards or the same melodic structure. It's like it, it'll be picked out of a fucking lineup, and it's boring. Um, but it's weird, you know. I, I, it's you. I'll see people who you say meat and potatoes, like uh, people who know general chord structuring and they'll make a fucking career out of it because they're astonishing performers and, and writers and you know that part's amazing you know I, I, then you don't see a problem with it it's in drumming there's so many like technical aspects of drumming as far as like uh inner independence and craziness with with all that and it's like but the most famous drummers are drummers who you know, play four on the floor and do like normal, just straight ahead stuff, John Bonham and all that shit, you know, but 
there's there's this like new movement towards this Google images fruit and vegetable fucking tray, these bright colored crazy looking uh, types of musicians, and then drumming and then metal in general. It's like this this whole movement towards the ultra technical to where there's it's watching music instead of listening to it. And uh, I don't think that you do that. I think all of this stuff has some kind of a time sensitive uh, uh, appeal. It's like the older you get, the more things change. And then you start seeing things a little differently. And that's what's happened to me. It's like, as I've gotten older, things have just changed so much on the focus and the, the what music's supposed to be. That's why I don't, I don't fuck with scenes and I don't mess with any of all that nonsense. That's, you know, for me, it's nonsense. It's like, everybody else is busy arguing or trying to be a certain way about a look. And it's like, well, you've turned music into fashion and it's not, uh, it's not for me anyway. And so, uh, my focus is like constantly trying to find new, uh, new people reinventing the wheel, things that move me, some combination of things. So it comes back to the musicians. It's like, you need, you need to be special is what I want. Um, if special means you're basic as fuck, then you're still special. If special means you're fucking Rachmaninoff level uh, compositional, then that's amazing too, obviously. So I think that's a really good way of putting it. Cause like, so earlier on when Jason said I play piano, I'm nowhere near the standard of uh, go craft or anything. I'm more just like in my spare time as a, as a hobby. But so I sort of approach metal from, almost like a non-musician's point of view, but metal's got quite a high percentage of musicians to listeners. So on average, you could bet that most fans do play an instrument or have played an instrument. So they have like a, a working knowledge of how music is written, uh, the basics of music theory and so on. But I do think that sometimes means that people become so fixated on on the theory and on being the most technically like dazzling or dense or whatever and it does detract from you know what it's meant to be about which is the listening experience so some forms of like technical or progressive metal become so kind of almost like navel gazing to the point where it's like who are we who are we doing this for are we playing for an audience that's going to understand this as as an artistic statement or are we just doing this as sort of a an exercise or a study in very kind of esoteric music theory and i think sometimes lose sight of the fact that it is meant to be <laughs> an art form that communicates yeah. something and it doesn't matter if it's basic as fuck as you said but yeah it's supposed to you know at your and uh, i mean we're we're all the three of us and we're we're all older on the, the you know the, the spectrum of like modern musicians and shit and so i think it's age for one i think uh, mid-20s and you know 30s sub 30 is uh uh all susceptible to the fucking look at me, catch me type thing. And so that there, there's where all of our lunacy fucking level players are at the moment. But uh, you, know, you do lose sight or you gain sight into that. I'm supposed to be writing something that's palatable and the measure of success for what I'm writing or uh, you have to, you know, you're balancing something. It's like, am I going to write something that is uh, consumable by many people or am I going to write something that I really feel and love? And then you try to mesh the two together. And 
hopefully you write something that's good enough and that's enough people will buy it that it sustains it. But you know, it's, I don't know. It's, it's just at this point, there's so many things, mechanisms working against everybody. And I think that the Instagram world and, and, and all of that is, is so driven by perfection, even in the, the uh, display of music. Uh, I see a lot of older, like fucking top level dudes, Tommy Igo and Dave Elich and all these crazy fucking drummers. Tony McAlpine, guitar player, keep a piano extraordinary. Uh, they talk about how you spend hours and hours and you spend uh, countless takes trying to get this thing to sync up perfectly on Instagram and it's dishonest. It's dishonest and you give a dishonest view of what musicians are. And it's, you know, it's obviously one of the, one of the downfalls of fucking the, the ease of social media, but it's just, uh, it gives this idea that you can't perform and, and you have nothing special to say unless you're playing at this level, at this level of perfection. And yeah, it really is. It's killing music to me. I see less and less young people playing and I wonder if it's a, a down or an outcome of this. Well, was, well, what you're talking about is very calculated executions rather than, you know, granted, most bands rehearse a lot. They have, you know, their fixed idea of what they want to perform. But then we talk about, you know, jazz musicians and uh, even some classical where they are able to perform improv yeah. and they're able to do it very well. That's one thing that I have always done with my live performances. Granted, when I first started out, I was re really, you know, really crass, essentially. But I, you know, like my, my, my foundation, I will say, is C sharp minor playing in that key and, you know, as you know, I, I became more educated and got more fluent with uh, performing. Um, my my live sets would be like you know eighty percent me just playing improv, then working in go craft melodies and things of that nature, which could be an injustice for people who actually like the music and they want to hear specific songs. So it's a double edged sword. It's like hey, I can perform in all these different modes. However when you get into the meeting gravies of being a performer, there's certain expectations that people have. You're not meeting that with doing improv, but um, I can see yourself as being a, an individual if required to, you could play improv um, because, you know, number one, you're educated and you're really talented on guitar, piano, as well as, you know, just probably, like I said, the, the best drummer in Texas. So uh, what's your kind of thought on that? Just like, you know, like you, you have a lot of uh, great jazz musicians who are able to do a lot of improv and play in different modes and scales, you know, on the dime, you know, wherever the music's taking them with each other, just because they're so fluent with the soul of the music. Whereas, you know, like metal is very calculated, you know, um, what's your what's your view on that? Like juxtaposing the two. I mean, I'm, uh, as I said before, it's, it's like, I'm looking for something special, you know? So if, 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 uh, if you can only fully recreate line for line, your songs live, uh, you know, I don't know. It's just like, if I go see a band and the fucking vocalist just doesn't have anything else other than what they put on the record. I want to see personality. Like I want to see something that is them because 
uh, December 19th of fucking 2007 is when you recorded that record. Have you not changed since then? Has nothing changed about what you're doing? You're essentially a robot. Yeah. Right. And it's like, um, why I fucking love jazz. I love jazz is because as a musician, unless you're a hired gun and you're backing up a band and you're doing uh, some big pop gig or country or something like that, you know, like different jobs, obviously. Um, but if you're a musician, it is about the, uh, the extremities and interpretations and it's like life and, and what you bring to the table. It's like how, how have the things in life affected how you play because they are ultimate driver. The influence comes from many things and it's like, uh, what you cook, what you read, what you what you've seen, what's traumatized you—all of these things make a musician. And uh, so, if I go watch uh, somebody doing some, you know, Art Blakey tribute or something like that, it's like I'm gonna know that there's gonna be an incredible fucking pianist, and I know that that pianist is gonna be able to winter wind walk around any of these melodies. Uh, John Batiste. Uh, Stephen Colbert's pianist, like that dude is fucking nuts. He, he did a, a ragtime New Orleans interpretation of uh, Chopin ballads. So it's got all of this blues and jazz mixed in with the actual, uh, the, the, all of the progressions of these Chopin pieces. And it's stuff like that. It's like, that's fucking special. Like that's, that's fucking incredible. Does that, you know, does that sell as many records as Adele does? And it's like, nah, it doesn't. Um, but for me, that's where like my musician, uh, fucking boner comes from, you know, it's like the, the masturbatory thing where they're chasing around the crazy Instagram post and all that. It's like, I, I'm, I'm doing a different version of that, but it's still a version of it. It's like, I'm looking for jaw dropping vocalist or, people that add so much orchestration to a, a band or a song to where uh, the bass player that band, the black Pumas, uh, the probably the best bl bass player in Texas uh, plays for the black Pumas. Uh, but you can watch him. You can watch how comfortable he is in time and how he's playing and, and like how he falls into everything. It's shit like that where you're like, yeah, that, that fucking is amazing. Very cool. Very cool. Um, something that I just want to go back and touch upon, which was really profound that you said earlier, is that you mentioned that, uh, you know, highly te technical, you know, like brutal death metal or tech death metal, things of that nature, or tech death is what I like to call it. Um, it's a visual representation rather than a musical expression. And that's essentially what you said of it's like, look at my skill, not necessarily the music. Do you think too many newer musicians fall into that trope where they see how, you know, uh, you know, proficient people are with really high technical ability, but what the, the messages that those musicians are conveying is just technicality for technicality's sake. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Like you watch all them stupid double, double handed tapping and, the bass players doing all that stuff. And it, it, then you deconstruct or you like actually listen to it. And you're like, dude, this is just some fucking flopping down of, uh, of, uh, eight particular fucking notes. It's like, there's nothing about, uh, you know, I, I guess the three of us probably have some inclination towards classical music. You and I definitely do. 
but it's like the amount of noting the depth and, and uh, the, the weight of the cord, chordal structure, you know, like romantic, uh, Russian romantic stuff, obviously is my thing. And, and when you're talking about some 13 note fucking chord that gives off this insane vibe, uh, Isle of the Dead shit. Uh, we're used to listening to very fucking rich, deep, and complicated uh, melodic stylings, but they also spoke volumes versus now the fucking, you know, crazy fucking arpeggiations just for the sake of it. It's not like, you know, this, who's, you know, I'm not going to name names because obviously it's like these dudes are fucking mega uh, amazing, like, players, but it, uh, it is for video. It's for views. It's for all of this stuff. Uh, the guys who are getting it right are the guys who are fucking uh, pulling the million plus views or the fucking hundred thousand dollars a month in and uh, merchandising and shit, which is like a fucking commonality in this this realm, bizarrely, because deathcore is fully back in swing. I don't know if you know about any of the, the this stuff, all the subgenres and shit, but well, I view Hate Eternal as the first deathcore band. Would you agree with that, Mr. Doctor? No, not at all. <laughs> I would like I, I would say like they they had like kind of like a metalcore metalcore texture with some of their stuff, and that might have been like the precursor of deathcore. I mean, the first album, certainly death metal, King of All Kings, that's when you know, Rutan, you know, spammed kind of the textures here and there rather than having riffs. But after that, I, I think there's like a precursor of like core stuff, but, you know, we could disagree on that one. But uh, um, <laughs> so you, I believe the last time we talked, we, we talked that, you know, you had been, you know, working on, you know, six or seven albums at a time. And uh, one of the new things was a new Oceans of Slumber um, because, you know, obviously COVID hit, you had your, arguably your, your biggest record with the, uh, the eponymous, eponymous album, Oceans of Slumber. Um, is there a new Oceans of Slumber album coming out? Like, what's the news with that? Yeah, yeah, it's, we, uh, we went to New York in July. June, we went to New York in June and recorded a whole new record. Biggest, uh biggest involved production anything i've ever been in my life we went and stayed and made a record in 24 days like old school style so yeah the first single will actually be out in january at some point awesome looking forward to that so how was the re you know the experience of recording you know like metallica style going into the recording studio you know spending a lot of time there not did you guys shoot a video of the experience like um like not really <laughs> we we uh we went and had this big like philosophical talk about intrusiveness in recording and you know it was kind of like anti-modernism when it comes to the representation online or like what was captured and obviously there's moments on there that should have been videotaped. Like it's, it's, you know, it's just what it is. So we just chose to keep it really sparse, you know, it's like it's, it's, it's going to be kind of like a, a mystical experience because everybody that was there knows of what happened. And 
everybody on the outside. Let's say this record like really does well in a crossover market. Uh, there's not a lot of behind the scenes footage. Um, and it's one of the first times we just kind of let Cammy sing and go and, and be in a, in a situation like that to where nobody had cameras in her face or none of this other shit was going on. It's like, just, just show up and do your best and let's see what fucking happens. It's a fucking amazing studio, the place we went to and the, the producer that we worked with is, you know, fucking crazy, crazy badass. Yeah. It was a big name. I forget his name. Can you, can you elaborate on that? Joel, Joel Hamilton. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Um, yeah. Go ahead. I hate this part in the podcast where we both say, go ahead. But, uh, I remember seeing the post and seeing that you're working with a really high profile producer. So, I can expect the best from the new Oceans of Slumber, correct? So it's going to be the best ever from the band up to this point. It, well, I mean, for sure, it's the but it's a huge change too. We we have stopped. There's no harsh vocals. There's no uh, death and black elements. Uh, we've shifted gears and and. Uh, started catering more to what the strengths are in the band. And obviously the strength in the band is Cammy's vocals. So, um, we have to stop trying to fit in into a place that either won't take us or, uh, won't accept what any of the stuff is. I mean, you know, in metal, obviously there's a big stigma against female vocals and shit like that. So it's not the biggest, market in the world that's why you have them lame ass fucking female metal voices fucking festivals and shit it's so campy <laughs> but well, we, we can all, go ahead <laughs> sorry <laughs> well we can all agree that shilly has actual star power um like she's you know a bit you know cut above the other female vocalists that she's genuinely you know absolutely talented and her her voice is very beautiful and it's nice to listen to and she has the range for it. Um, like she has true star power and you just kind of unleashed her in the studio. What was the process like with Cammy? you know, just for curious minds about what the vocals would be like. Well, we, um, the record blends, uh, a lot of styles. It's, it's, uh, we're, we're expanding on, uh, a few of the ideas that were on the, self-titled record and going further. And so this is a mixture of very dark Southern boudoir sounding music, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, the, the Southern Gothic thing is fully what this is. It's, it's like, uh, dark wave country metal and all of these things mixed together in a way that's not too fucking, that's not abrasive. And by the last three records that we've put out, it's, um, it's basically a, a grown up outlook of, of what we've been doing. Nothing for shock value, nothing for contrast. Um, it's, um, Tony Mamoni, uh, from Perubu and, uh, they might be giants and a bunch of Bob mold and a bunch of projects. Well, he's one of the studio owners at, in, at the place that we were at. And, um, I had written this big Southern 
gospel track for the record. It's something between Southern gospel and mid mid era anathema. And uh, he came in and sat in while we were doing hearbacks for the vocals. And he just looked at me and Cammy, and he was just like, Jesus Christ, man, like this is fucking amazing. And, you know, my guy's a pretty, uh, very well known and, and very well taste structured musician and bass player and, and music maker. You know, it's stuff like that where I don't know what the record's going to do. We have no idea. Uh, I'm sure that all of the metal thumb suckers and shit that are on Century Media's stuff are probably going to whine about it just because it doesn't sound like anything else that they're putting out. But the record labels doubled down on what we're doing. Like they're so fully behind this record that um, it might be the first really big success for the band, even though the band's doing well or has done pretty well, but like big, like crossover. So if you mix all that with like Pesh Mode and then the heaviest Doom song that we've ever made, uh, that's what the record sounds like. So I don't know what to, what to fucking explain. I Can't, really, I mean, she's so absolutely fucking insane on this record, though. Like, it's it's the best vocal performance that she's ever put in. Uh, Kimmy, Kimmy, can I ask Kimmy a question? <laughs> Kimmy, what was the process like with doing vocals on this new album? Did you want to, you know, put your soul on your sleeve? Like what was you know you're talking about like breaking the mold of what the band used to be you know being very metalized and uh, you know branching into different you know influences like what what did you pull forth for this you know your vocal performance on this new record you know I haven't heard a track of it I, Dauber said there's going to be a debut of a single coming out in January um, wh what was the process like for you like how how was this different than other times recording? I think, well, it was my first time recording anywhere else. I think all, all the Oceans albums I'd recorded at the same studio up until this one. Um, and so to work with like a completely different team in a completely different place was, it seemed like it was going to be stressful. But once we got there, it felt like, like home. Um, I feel like this time going into it mentally, it was like shedding any concern about what, what the, and it's like in service of the song and what, what I wanted to do and what I felt from like the core of, of melody that came out for like the, the, the structures of the song and not really worrying about what, what it was going to be perceived as on the other end. Like, so not worrying about, like, does this sound metal enough or does this sound like what people want this song to sound like? It was, this is how this song is coming out. This is how this song is kind of forming in this magic place, which is uh, Studio G. And it, it was probably the least mentally worry, worrisome album as far as how the songs were going to turn out. Like, I wanted to make sure that I pushed and just got out everything i was feeling for each song excellent really looking forward to hearing this this sounds almost from left field but more true than uh you know just you know creating metal like copying albums they've already done before 
and you know reiterating upon those statements it sounds like something that could be quote-unquote more pure if that makes sense um just you know going into it with you know not having to cater to anybody like you just want to create music and have that be flushed out the way that it naturally evolves so really really cool to have that you know input on this new album i think you know it could be pretty big from what i'm hearing um shelly do you have any thoughts on what you just heard you know anything that um in regard to whether you know we're talking about jazz musicians and classical and metal and even uh perhaps some southern gospel which i don't know if you're fluent with you know being in england but anything that uh you might want to chime in on um yeah, it's just going back to the sort of discussion around um, the process of writing music and the sort of the performative aspects of it today. Like we could talk about how social media and Instagram are kind of dumbing down some aspects of music and turning it into sort of just showmanship or whatever. But in terms of like the process of recording an album, it I think people sometimes get carried away with... Uh, worshipping albums over bands to the point where they kind of forget that an album is just like a, a document of what a, what a group of musicians or a musician is doing at a particular time. So this is where I was in 2007. Right. And like that is just a fixed moment. It's done, it's recorded, it's over. And then people kind of fixate on that to the point where, as Dobber was saying, they kind of, they need to recreate it live beat for beat um word for word because that's what's important to people but i think i think some, sometimes people forget that an album after that or rather sorry the music on the album can kind of evolve and grow and the ideas on the album can evolve and grow as the musicians themselves do and the really special musicians are ones that they do mess around with the ideas of the songs on there with live performances and they change them and mess them around with new performances and that's not so common in metal because, you know, these things become canonized and kind of sacred to the point where if you were to, you know, if, you know, Morbid Angel or whatever were to fuck around with a song on Blessed of the Sick, it would be considered, well, blasphemy, <laughs> <laughs> um, for want of a better word. But you know what I mean? Like, um, it would tend to sort of worship the thing as it was in that fixed point in time, whereas in jazz... Um, and to some extent, classical, as you mentioned, classical music has a lot of, you know, musicians that are very good at improvising, but jazz as well kind of has that, the, the performance itself isn't just a rendition or a recital of the sacred work, works. It's like a, you know, it's a moment in time and it's a shared moment between the audience and the musicians. And I think the interesting thing about metal is it doesn't really embrace that for all the sort of bravado around showmanship and musicianship and virtuoso guitar solos or whatever, it doesn't really embrace just fucking around with the music and having fun with it live and messing, you know, putting things in different order, like you do with Goatcraft, for instance. That's a great example of like how that could be done. Um, it was just one of the thoughts I had when you were discussing that earlier on. Sorry. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how to, you know, it, blessed sick. And what what would they do to improve it? Uh, how would they improve that song? I mean, as far as a death metal track, amazing. But 
but was there a time that I know I've had, and I'm not like morbid angel level stuff. Um, was there a time when a year later they're like, this is the fucking version. (laughs) I wish we'd have recorded it now. You know, like we, we, uh, we, we missed the mark. And I, I think with musicians and training and, and getting to some kind of levels is that you're, you're trying to build yourself up to a point to where you hit that mark so much sooner instead of having the regrets or, um, as far as writing and everything else goes, it's, uh, it's weird. It's, it's interesting. And it's, it's how you find like fucking star or amazing performers and musicians. And it's, uh, it's like a quest. I, I love seeing magical moments live. I've absolutely fucking floors me. It's what I live for. You go see somebody and you're just like, wow. You know, you look around the room and you're wondering why everybody else isn't like taking their pants off and shitting on them because it's so crazy. <laughs> but, it's interesting you were saying how the new oceans of slumber you had you know a set time where you were shut away in the studio to get it done and you're focusing on nothing else and i think it's you know it's a very old school way of doing it because a lot of albums now like you know people have the technology to record them in their own time they don't have to book studio time so they can constantly fiddle with them to the point where you know you, the temptation is to over fiddle and you're constantly tweaking songs to the point where you're overthinking it and there could you know you could say oh well you know, you're always improving it or whatever, but I sometimes think you do have to just put a, musicians have to put a pin in it and say, no, that's, that's it now. Like that's, that's how I'm going to record it. And maybe I'll come back to it in a few years time or whatever. But I think the, the the home studio thing does encourage people to just, just second guess themselves too much. I'd say. Well, it's, it's it's the home studio allows every person that writes to be a writer uh, so it's like, imagine if every, imagine this scenario and it's like every person who likes to write is able to publish a book. So then, then fucking what, you know, it's like the home studio thing does do that. That's what's fucking tragic about it. It's, it's amazing because you'll discover things that you never would have. And they're the diamonds in the rough. And then there are the people who if you take a fucking song and they, and they, uh, revise it every two or three days to the point of like, dude, you've killed the soul of what this is. Like you fucking just put it down, like let it alone. Um, and in our case, it's what was so amazing about the old school way of doing it is that <clears throat> we got a bunch of songs, the band's ready. The band is far, far more than capable of playing and interpreting these songs in a fucking great way. Right now we go into the studio session we have limited amounts of time to get all of this stuff done. It's not very limited. I mean, 24 fucking days to record 10 songs is pretty good, actually. Um, and you have somebody that's a cat wrangler in there, and that's like a producer. And so then it's all like, cool, great, do this this way. Uh, here's my out, outside perspective and professional opinion, and let me help you make songs better. And it's the first time I've ever worked I've ever worked with an outside producer like that. Uh, um, and so, yeah, it's like, put, put your thoughts down, put your song down and fucking walk away from it and be done with it. You know, if it's truly good, it'll fucking stick out. It'll be good. Or it'll get lost in obscurity forever because there's so many fucking bands out there. So, <laughs> well, it's a bit like to take your writing analogy again, like, yeah, sure. Everyone now can, you know, can publish a book if they want to, but like not everyone has a, 
a trained editor who will actually improve and hone the idea, like, and say, actually, no. 100%. (laughs) Yeah, because it's like, you know, how, how, how fortunate and capable can you be to have, you know, people don't really understand the process of what that is. It's all like, you are a, you're a fucking amazing, you're, let's say at the highest level, you're a, a fucking genius and you're a real talent. You turn in your book and then like the next step of it being the editor and it's all like, Hey, let me put this stuff together on the, the chopping, uh, the, the chopping room floor. It's like how movies are made. It's how anything special is made. It's like, you absolutely have to have the idea and the wording. And then it doesn't hurt if you have somebody who has your back on it, you know, I'm going to help you make this as special as it is. Like, I think this is special. We can fix a few things here and there and we'll make it really fucking special. And we need that. You know, you have to get out. The rest of that shit has to get out of the way. And um, it's like we've, we've, uh, and I hate even using the fucking word. We've normalized uh, art to a point to where art is for everybody and everybody can make art. And there's, you know, the only thing that's special is fucking at the top of the top of the top. And, it's, and you're like, no, there's, there's plenty of fucking really special, really obscure, really special and truly special in the middle somewhere or wherever the fuck it's at. But we've just normalized this idea that uh, you want to write a book, you should be able to write a book. You should be able to put it out. You want to write a record, you should write a record. You should be able to put it out. And, uh, it gets back into the scene thing or, you know, for me, like Jason, and I've talked about this before and it's like, I don't, uh, I don't care for that. I don't care to walk into rooms of people who can get together and chatter louder than I can chatter. And so then it's pointless. It's like, I don't need to hang around and be around that. Um, let special find its fucking way. It will. It always will. As long as you can stick it out. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the reasons why I, got into reviewing in the first place because i was like if i ignore something that means i really do despise it but i'll only write about stuff where i do think there is potential there or there's like redeeming features or you know obviously stuff i also think is incredible but like where it's like no actually there are some really legitimate criticisms of xyz but also there's real potential in what you're doing uh it's the stuff i ignore that is (laughs) the bottom of the barrel trash but that's what's insane about it is like we we've we've turned into this thing to where it's so uh, we put so much time and stock into like hating things, <laughs> you know, and you're like, well, I hate this band. And it's like, well, cool. Well, you can say that you hate it out loud, but do you have to run around or we have to write 85,000 fucking reviews or do we have to have a fucking thing? And it's like, move on to the next. Like we're literally trying to find things, uh, trying to find things that enrich our lives and be that music or literature or art or any of that shit. Um, and to have so much stock put into the clickbait level, uh, uh, downgrading of everything. And it's all like, if it's no good, it's no good. And nobody will be into it. But uh, I used to love when I found reviewers that had similar trustable taste. You know what I mean? Uh, it was like the most amazing thing in the world 25 fucking years ago, whenever you were able to see somebody that, doesn't write about or doesn't go all nuts on something that they don't like. Uh, but that's the problem with everything being available now too, I guess, is everybody can pay a PR company to get their record submitted and whether it good or bad, 
It's a rough oh, yeah, industry. Absolutely. There's a lot of a lot of hyperbole out there, both in music writing and like PR stuff. But yeah, you just kind of I just take a lot of it with a pinch of salt and just you know, if it's that good, the music will speak for itself. If it's um if it's that bad, can the musical speak for itself, but for the wrong reasons? So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I get really burned out on the, uh, the, the evils of marketing. It's really intense. So Dauber, um, the new malignant alter, which is called realms of exquisite morbidity. Um, I heard some good feedback. I listened to a little bit of it. I mean, granted, you know, I was doing my homework for Necrofire today, but we decided just to do a general dauber. Um, what I really like about Malignant Alter is it does have some really great hooks in that death metal. Um, and I think that's kind of derived from your <laughs> uh, backing of what you like, like almost like Morbid Angel-esque type of hooks with some fucking phenomenal drumming on top of it. And even... Uh, Jan um, from Samoth, that uh, that band commented on your post and he committed your uh, drumming because your drumming adds this whole other element to the you know the traditional death metal style. Which I know that band's more like traditional death metal, like the evil sort of uh, more in line with like the Tampa death metal scene than like New York and other things of that nature, but uh, um. But that, that drumming element that you add in really does add that extra layer that, you know, lets the riffs, you know, be more sinuated here and there. And you, you bring more gravitas, you know, with your drumming. So can you tell me a little about the process of writing that album, like how you approached it? Or was it just like, okay, we're doing this. Here's my stuff. I put it on your riffs. And that is that, or like, well, what was the process like? It's a fortunate situation to where the entire band, uh, in some way loves Morbid Angel and that type of like, uh, mid to fast paced evil death metal. Um, and we're from Houston, uh, obviously. And it's like the, the background of what like imprecation and, and infernal dominion was on uh, us and the types of death metal that we we play is is uh, pretty profound you know we <coughs> we like heavy backbeat groove death metal with blast here and double bass there um as far as for me i there's a speaking tone in drumming that just really hadn't hit death metal yet black metal or death metal and it's guys that that you know i play a lot of like uh groove and r&b stuff it's like what i'm into as far as a drummer like i, I like deep deep pocketed groove drumming uh and i also grew up on a lot of fusion and shit and so I, you know i learned a lot of different stuff but it's it's all become it's things i learned in application to what i'm doing it's like i'm i'm really only trying to improve my ability to um express myself uh and by that doesn't mean that i need to put some kind of latin fucking rhythms in the middle of black or death metal shit it's like i might have done that when i was younger but that was just vanity stupid shit <clears throat> and so the there's actually been a whole lot of focus on the drum stuff on this record which is super cool but it's it's also like uh necessary you know like the the music is heavy groove 
uh, and benefits from heavy grooving. And so, that's, well, when that's you say groove, I mean that like groove and death metal means you know quite a few different things. You're you're groove talking about. I listen to a lot of Luther Vandross and Donnie Hathaway, like groove like that. <laughs> like groove could be like slam, essentially. So, but it's not slam whatsoever. Not, um, not at all. So, uh, I have a couple more questions before we wrap up today's episode. Um, and Shelly is more welcome to chime in because uh, we're going into the nitty gritty of why we love black metal here. And I have a really high reverence for Samuel's album, Ceremony of Opposites. And I know Dauber does too. Um, like, I, I feel like every, like, I just one of the albums I know all the lyrics to. I know Dauber does too. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it just resonated. It was like, it wasn't really my gateway into black metal, but I heard it after getting into black metal. And it just made me appreciate black metal even more because there was such a, a great poetic aspect to the lyrics as well. Like you look at the lyrics of ceremony of opposites. There's a lot of, a lot of emotion and tension of the soul that's in the lyrics. And, uh, you know, the, the riffs might be considered a little bit rock oriented here and there. And it is a really short album, but that, that album has stuck with me throughout the ages. And I know it's stuck with the Dauber. So the Dauber, can you elaborate about why that album is special to you? I remember a, a review of the record in like Metal Maniacs or something whenever it came out, and it was a uh, it was saying that the it had such that the entire album had such a, a carnal or had given such a carnal response, like it felt the record felt like wet. It felt uh, and not to correlate the two too much, but it was such a, a, a feeling whenever I heard that. It was one of the first times I'd heard a band and thought to myself, like, you know, this is real. Like, this is, it's, it's, it's like scary to the touch, real to me. Uh, and it 1000% influenced my drumming. I, I taught myself how to play off that record. So, um, it felt fucking dark. You know, it, it was, it was, uh, by the time it had come out, I'd been a super huge Morbid Angel fan for a long time. And Morbid Angel was one of the first like satanic death metal bands that I got into. And, and I spent a lot of time being into that shit. And I still am today. But whenever that Sam I.L., when I got the tape, I went to the fucking mall, bought the tape. The tape was rewound to the other side. Uh, so it didn't start on, uh, the first track. It started on, uh, Baphomet's throne. The Musorsky. So when I put it in my tape deck, do what? The Musorsky. Yeah. an exhibition. <laughs> so whenever I uh, I put it in my truck, it automatically flipped the tape because it wouldn't play the other side. It just started playing that, and, I, and I'm thinking to myself, like, what in the fuck is this? And then I started the riff just started happening, and then by the time it got to Ceremony of Opposites, uh, flagellation, and then through onto Ceremony of Opposites, I was like, dude, I've never heard music like this. And so I think it was a combination of the time period, the nostalgia of what it was, and that being totally fucking new. Um, because I, I, think, I went out and got Blood Ritual right after that, too. I think as well, like, they're a great example of, like, non-Norwegian black metal. Like, 
obviously, like everyone sort of reveres the immortal Dark Throne Emperor, all that crowd, and they had a sort of very, very distinctive, a very specific kind of take on black metal. But you know, it's to the detriment of early Rotten Christ, Smile, and um, you know, even stuff from like Austria and France as well. It's just kind of forgetting that there was a real diversity of black metal around that time and Smile were one of those that they called back to like you know early you know Celtic Frost Hellhammer Baffery stuff as well it's just but sort of imbuing that really kind of primal dirty old school stuff with a sense of kind of theatrics and, and melodrama that kind of really came it all, all the kind of all the stars aligned with that album in terms of like crafting that style oh yeah I mean think about the 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 look of the band, seeing the, the, you know, hearing the record, seeing all of the press photos and everything. It's like they looked like the real deal. Like, I thought that they would just eat the Norwegian bands, you know. <laughs> there was something about it. To, it's the same way that how it was for me with the uh, Celtic Frost whenever I first uh, had to go through that whole mind-blowing thing to where you know, 1980 fucking five or 87, like you're, you're thinking like, what was it like to hear this? This was the first, this ever. And you hear this for the first time. And it had to be fucking like, uh, just a, such a fucking, uh, lucid mind altering experience. You're like, this exists now. Like, what is this? And that SMIL was like that for me. When I heard that I'd really been heavily into death metal at the time. And I went and picked it up when it came out. Cause they toured with grave and Cannibal Corpse, and it was like a disastrous tour, but they still kept it together. I mean, they played super fucking tight band at the time. Yeah, it's very interesting, like uh, Vorflak with how he's, you know, changed the band, you know, Passage was really good, you know, for what they tried to do. It was very avant-garde, and then Eternal was when they started assimilating more of the industrial aspects and they can kind of continue that for the rest of the career. Um, but I, I always view like ceremony of opposites, just being like this pure expression. And it was very poetic. You look at the lyrics, very poetic. And, uh, and the is like, he's probably like, if I were to say it, it was like more intelligent than David Vincent and writing lyrics, like David Vincent was really good writing lyrics, morbid angel, but Vorflak was certainly, uh, he, he struck a chord with me back when I was young, you know, getting into black metal and reading his lyrics. It's like, I am a tree awaiting the lightning. It's like, yeah. I am too a tree awaiting the lightning. It's an, an incredible yeah. fucking line. Incredible line. <laughs> you speak to me at my soul level. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, Mr. Dauber, I have one last question before we wrap up. Shelly may have another question after this, but uh, um. You said you're still in the satanic stuff and all of that. And um, I noticed with the Necrofire, you have a song called the, the Black Flame Burns, which is a common you know thing in uh, satanic philosophy, whether it's within the Church of Satan or Temple of Sad or Greater Church of Lucifer, there's always the element of the Black Flame. So what does the Black Flame mean to you, Mr. Dauber? <laughs> uh i mean I, I think it's just simple symbolism and that i mean i don't i uh when i talk to people about personal 
outlook and philosophies. I mean, you know, mine's obviously a work in progress. And so what I like about black metal and the, the, the whole connection to the satanic thing is it has a lot less to do with my personal life than it does with just preferences and what I enjoy. Um, black the black flame burns was probably mostly seen as just a, uh, the best way to put it without sounding uh, condescending. It's like, it was, uh, it's easy ground to cover and not meaning that you're just copping out. It's just like, Hey, we're in the middle of this thing and we're building a music based off this style. Um, let's just go with something that's simple enough. Um, when I explain to people, I mean, even Cammy and I talk about it. It's like, if you were to, to check boxes on a piece of paper with uh, you know, the diagram style, most people would, in our circles would probably um, identify with satanic people anyway, you know, and it's such a, it's such a loaded weapon. Um, Cause in black metal, you are expected to be uh, these certain ways or everybody now is getting interstellar and all that nonsense uh, or cosmic, but it doesn't mean uh, it doesn't mean what it used to mean to me. Now it's just, you know, part of the part of what we're doing. So it's just tri territory essentially, and uh, that's why it's incorporated, which makes sense. You know, black metal being inherently satanic. Um, you got to think though. I mean, with Necrofire, it's so it's so new that all of the the, the all the personal connections and and, and uh, ethos and all that stuff it, it hasn't sunk in yet you know it's like uh the how we believe or what we believe and what we uh gravitate towards is is pretty different you know christians real heavy into uh dark arts having to do with uh thai and indonesian and and south american stuff it's like he's just really interested in, in that kind of uh of a history uh, and philosophy of history you know and it's like he likes those. We have things that have to do with dark gods of Bali and all that shit in the music. Um, it really isn't the band really isn't like in a direction on that. It's just kind of explores all directions with it. I would be worried if we rolled straight out and we got a bunch of lit up pentagrams and all that shit on the next record, it would mean that we're doing what? I don't know. <laughs> it's like, Hey, we're mimicking Gorgoroth. So Shelly, you had one last question before we wrap up. Oh no, it's just it was just a thought on it's interesting because although like black metal and extreme metal in general tends to have quite heady uh, like lyrical themes, like the the concepts are really well thought out and people spend a lot of time coming up with it. But like just from a, a listener's point of view, it's always secondary to me. I'm always focused on what the music's doing. I'll focus on like the, the vocal performance, but the lyrics are always if I get really into a band, that's when I start looking into the lyrics and stuff. But for me, it's always it's always just part of like the texture over that. And if I find an, uh, an interesting lyrical concept, then I'll look into it. But it's more of like a, a secondary consideration for me anyway. It's a major bonus. I, I agree fully. I think that uh, I think in death and black metal that 
the best way I've been able to describe it to people who do not listen to it at all and then come out and enjoy it is the fact that it's like the voice is just another instrument in the band. It is another texture. Um, so the focus is, is different, but let's say you, you find some black or death metal band. That's absolutely amazing. And then you go to the next level and you look at the lyrics and they're fucking cheap. And then you're like, Oh fuck, you know, like, well, I just won't, <laughs> I won't pay attention to lyrics. Or yeah. you find one that has incredible writing and then you're like, fuck yeah, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, you can really do that with a pop song where you can hear the hear the words really clearly because if the lyrics are awful, then you're kind of like, it's too much, it's too front and center so you can't really just put it out of your mind whereas in extreme metal because you often can't hear the lyrics anyway. If they're terrible, you could just say, well, yeah, I'll just pretend they're another instrument essentially. <laughs> What's funny is something that's, that used to be preached to us through the, the big wigs for oceans is that if our the majority of our market over the years up until now has been very much in Europe and that's where we tour the most. Um, the former head of the label is a good friend of mine and he's who signed the band. He was all like, I wouldn't worry so much about the lyrics or what this is that, you know, if, if it, if your videos are matching up to what the, the lyrics say, it's not so much a concern is because most of these people cannot understand English that well anyway. And so <laughs> we're basically selling you guys to somebody that, that enjoys the look of Cammy and enjoys her voice, but they really don't know what she's saying. So it doesn't matter that much. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> it's like, it reminds me of the first time I found out what Ramstein was singing about. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> penises. It's all they sing about is penises. Yeah. So, Mr. Dubber, um, I do want to thank you for your time today. I have to race like a piss horse. So, uh, um, <laughs> Yeah, I've been drinking beer, having a good time. And Shelly, um, always great to have you on board. Um, so hopefully this episode was great for you guys. And uh, I'll post it up probably today. Cheers from Texas. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was nice to chat. And uh, I'm sorry I didn't attack anybody on their views and shit or whatever that shit <laughs> is. <laughs> Cammy, you want to hurt somebody? Always. <laughs> Day on. All right, cool. Have a great rest of your day.